Chapter 11 Edmund, meanwhile, had been having a most disappointing time. When the dwarf had gone to get the sled ready, he expected that the witch would start being nice to him, as she had been at the last meeting. But she said nothing at all, and when at last Edmund plucked up his courage to say, Please, your majesty, could I have some Turkish delight? You, you said, and she answered, Silence, fool. Then she appeared to change her mind and said, as if to herself, And yet it will not do to have the brat fainting on the way. And once more clapped her hands. Another dwarf appeared. Bring the human creature food and drink, she said. The dwarf went away and presently returned, bringing an iron bowl with some water in it and an iron plate with a hunk of dry bread on it. He grinned in a repulsive manner as he set them down on the floor beside Edmund and said, Turkish delight for the little prince. <laughs> Take it away, Edmund said sulkily. I don't want dry bread. But the witch suddenly turned on him with such a terrible expression on her face that he apologized and began to nibble at the bread, though it was so stale he could hardly get it down. You may be glad enough of it before you taste bread again, said the witch. While he was still chewing away, the first dwarf came back and announced that the sled was ready. The white witch rose and went out, ordering Edmund to go with her. The snow was again falling as they came into the, into the courtyard, but she took no notice of that and made Edmund sit beside her on the sled. But before they drove off, she called Mogram, and he came bounding like an enormous dog to the side of the sled. Take with you the swiftest of your wolves, and go at once to the house of the beavers, said the witch, and kill whatever you find there. If they are already gone, then make all speed to the stone table, but do not be seen. Wait for me there, in hiding. I, meanwhile, must go many miles to the west before I find a place where I can drive across the river. You may overtake these humans before they reach the stone table. You will know what to do if you find them. I hear and obey, O queen, growled the wolf, and immediately he shot away into the snow and darkness as quickly as a horse can gallop. In a few minutes he had called another wolf and was with him down the dam and sniffing at the beaver's house, but of course they found it empty. It would have been a dreadful thing for the beavers and the children if the night had remained fine, for the wolves would have been able to follow their trail, and ten to one would have overtaken them before they had got to the cave. But now that the snow had begun again, the scent was cold, and even the footprints were covered up. Meanwhile, the dwarf whipped up the reindeer, and the witch and Edmund drove out under the archway and on and away into the darkness and the cold. This was a terrible journey for Edmund, who had no coat. Before they had been going quarter of an hour, all the front of him was covered with snow. He soon stopped trying to shake it off because as quickly as he did that, a new lot gathered and he was so tired. Soon he was wet to the skin and oh how miserable he was. It didn't look now as if the witch intended to make him a king. All of those things he had said to make himself believe that she was good and kind and that her side was really the right side sounded to him silly now. He would have given anything to meet the others at this moment, even Peter. The only way to comfort himself now was to try to believe that the whole thing was a dream and that he might wake up at any moment. And as they went on, hour after hour, it did not seem like a dream. 
This lasted longer than I could describe, even if I wrote pages and pages about it. But I will skip on to the time when the snow had stopped, and the morning had come, and they were racing along in the daylight. Still, they went on and on with no sound but the everlasting swish of the snow and the creaking of the reindeer's harness. And at last, the witch said, What have we here? Stop! And they did. How Edmund hoped she was going to say something about breakfast. But she had stopped for quite a different reason. A little way off, at the foot of a tree, sat a merry party. A squirrel and his wife with their children two satyrs, and a dwarf, an old dog fox. They all stood on stools around a table. Edmund couldn't quite see what they were eating, but it smelled lovely and there seemed to be decorations of holly, and he wasn't at all sure that he didn't see something like a plum pudding. At the moment when the sled stopped, the fox, who was obviously the oldest person present, had just risen to its feet, holding a glass in its right paw as if it was going to say something. But the whole party saw the sled stopping, and who was in it. All of the gaiety went out of their faces. The father squirrel stopped eating with his fork halfway to his mouth, and one of the satyrs stopped with its fork actually in its mouth, and the baby squirrel squeaked with terror. "'What is the meaning of this?' asked the witch queen. Nobody answered. Speak, vermin, she said again, or do you want my dwarf to find you a tongue with his whip? What is the meaning of all this gluttony, this waste, this self-indulgence? Where did you get all these things? Please, your majesty, said the fox, we were given them, and if I might make so bold as to drink your majesty's very good health, who gave them to you, said the witch. Father Christmas, stammered the fox. "'What?' roared the queen, springing from the sled and taking a few strides nearer to the terrified animals. "'He has not been here. He cannot have been here. How dare you! But no, say you have been lying, and you shall even now be forgiven.' At that moment, one of the young squirrels lost its head completely. "'He has, he has, he has!' it squeaked, beating its little spoon on the table." Edmund saw the witch bite her lips so as that a drop of blood appeared on her white cheek. Then she raised her wand. Oh, don't, please don't, don't, shouted Edmund. But even while he was shouting, she had waved her wand, and instantly the, where the merry party had been, there were only statues of creatures, one with its stone fork fixed forever halfway to its stone mouth seated round a stone table on which there were stone plates and a stone plum pudding. As for you, said the witch, giving Edmund a stunning blow on the face as she remounted the sled, let that teach you to ask favor for spies and traitors. Drive on. And Edmund, for the first time in this story, felt sorry for someone besides himself. It seemed so pitiful to think of those little stone figures sitting there all the silent days and all the dark nights, year after year, till the moss grew on them and at last even their faces crumbled away. Now they were steadily racing on again, and Edmund noticed soon that the snow which splashed against them as they rushed through it was much wetter than it had been last night. At the same time he noticed that he was feeling much less cold. It was also becoming foggy. In fact, every minute it grew foggier and warmer. 
The sled was not running nearly as well as it had been running up until now. At first he thought this was because the reindeer were tired, but soon he saw that that couldn't be the real reason. The sled jerked and skidded and kept on jolting as if it had struck against stones. However the dwarf whipped the poor reindeer, the sled went slower and slower. There also seemed to be a curious noise all around them, but the noise of their driving and jolting and the dwarf shouting at the reindeer prevented Edmund from hearing what it was, until suddenly the sled struck so fast um, that it wouldn't go on at all. When that happened, there was a moment's silence. In that silence, Edmund could at last listen to the other noises properly. A strange, sweet, rustling, chattering noise. And yet not so strange, for he'd heard it before. Oh, if only he could remember where. Then all at once he did remember. It was the noise of running water. All around them, throughout all of sight, there were streams, chattering, murmuring, bubbling, splashing, and even in the distance, roaring. His heart gave a great leap, though he hardly knew why, when he realized that the frost was over. And much nearer there was a drip, drip, drip from the branches of all the trees. And then as he looked at one tree, he saw a great load of snow slide off it. And for the first time since he entered Narnia, he saw the dark green of a fir tree. But he hadn't time to listen or watch any longer. For the witch said, Don't sit staring, fool, get out and help. And of course, Edmund had to obey. He stepped out into the snow but it was really only slush by now, and began helping the dwarf to get the sled out of the muddy hole it had gotten into. They got out in the end, and by being very cruel to the reindeer, the dwarf managed to get it on the move again, and they drove a little bit farther. Now the snow was really melting in earnest, and patches of green grass were beginning to appear in every direction. Unless you've looked at a world of snow as long as Edmund had been looking at it, you will hardly be able to imagine what a relief those green patches were after the endless white. That's when the sled stopped again. It's no good, your majesty, said the dwarf. We can't sled in this thaw. Then we must walk, said the witch. We should never, never overtake them by walking, growled the dwarf. Not with the start they've got. Are you my counselor or my slave? said the witch. Do as you're told. Tie the hands of the human creature behind it, and keep hold of the end of the rope. Take your whip, cut the harness off the reindeer. Of the reindeer, they'll find their own way home. The dwarf obeyed, and in a few minutes, Edmund found himself being forced to walk as fast as he could with his hands tied behind him. He kept on slipping in the slush and mud and wet grass, and every time he slipped, the dwarf gave him a curse and sometimes a flick of the whip. The witch walked behind the dwarf and kept on saying, Faster! Faster! Every moment the patches of green grew bigger and the patches of snow grew smaller. Every moment more and more of the trees shook off their robes of snow. Soon, wherever you looked, instead of white shapes, you saw the dark green of firs or the black prickly branches of bare oaks and beeches and elms. Then the mist turned from white to gold and presently cleared away altogether. Shafts of delicious sunlight struck down onto the forest floor, and overhead you could see a blue sky between the treetops. Soon there were more wonderful things happening. Coming suddenly around a corner into a glade of silver birch trees, Edmund saw the ground covered in all directions with little yellow flowers. Calendines. The noise of water grew louder. Presently they came 
they actually crossed a stream. Beyond it, they found snowdrops growing. Mind your own business, said the dwarf, when he saw that Edmund had turned his head to look at them, and he gave the rope a vicious jerk. But of course, this didn't prevent Edmund from seeing. Only five minutes later, he noticed a dozen crocuses growing around the foot of an old tree, gold and purple and white. Then came a sound even more delicious than the sound of water. Close beside the, the path they were following, a bird suddenly chirped from the branch of a tree. It was answered by the chuckle of another bird a little further off. And then, as if that had been a signal, there was chattering and chirping in every direction. And then a moment of full song, and within five minutes the whole wood was ringing with birds' music. And whether... And wherever Edmund's eyes turned, he saw birds lighting on branches or sailing overhead, chasing one another or having their little quarrels or tidying up their feathers with their beaks. Faster, faster, said the witch. There was no trace of fog now. The sky became bluer and bluer, and now there were white clouds hurrying across it from time to time. In the wide glades, there were primroses. A light breeze sprung up which scattered drops of moisture from the swaying branches and carried cool, delicious scents against the faces of the travelers. The trees began to come alive fully. The larches and birches were covered with green, the laburums with gold. Soon the beech trees had put forth their delicate, transparent leaves. As the travelers walked under the light, under them, the light also became green. A bee also buzzed across their path. This is no thaw, said the dwarf, suddenly stopping. This is spring. What are we to do? Your winter has been destroyed, I tell you. This is all of Aslan's doing. If either of you mentions that name again, said the witch, he shall instantly be killed. Chapter 12 While the dwarf and the white witch were saying this, miles away the beavers and the children were walking on hour after hour into what seemed a delicious dream. Long ago they had left the coats behind them, and by now they had even stopped saying to one another, Look, there's a kingfisher, or I say bluebells, or what was that lovely smeller? Just listen to that thrush. They walked on in silence, drinking it all in, passing through patches of warm sunlight into cool green thickets, and out again into wide mossy glades where tall elms raised the leafy roof far overhead, and then into dense mosses of flowering current and among hawthorn bushes where the sweet smell was almost overpowering. They had just they had been just as surprised as Ed Edmund when they saw the winter vanishing and the whole wood passing in a few hours or so from January to May. They hadn't even known for certain, as the witch did, that this, this is what would happen when Aslan came to Narnia. But they all knew it was her spell which had produced the endless winter, and therefore they all knew when this magic spring began that something had gone wrong, and badly wrong, with the witch's schemes. And after the thaw had been going on for some time, they all realized that the witch would no longer be able to use her sled. After that, they didn't seem so much, didn't hurry so much, and they allowed themselves more rests and longer ones. They were pretty tired by now, of course, but what I'd call bitterly tired, only slow and feeling very dreamy and quiet inside, as one does when one is coming to the end of a long day in the open. 
Susan had a slight blister on one heel by the end of it. They had left the course of the big river some time ago, for no one, for one had to turn a little to the right, that meant a little to, to the south, to reach the place of the stone table. Even if this had not been their way, they couldn't have kept to their river valley once the thaw began, for with all that melting snow, the river was soon in flood, a wonderful, roaring, thundering yellow flood, and their path would have been underwater. And now the sun got low and light got redder and the shadows got longer and flowers began to think about closing. Not long now, said Mr. Beaver, and he began leading them uphill across some very deep springy moss. It felt very nice under their tired feet in a place where only tall trees grew very wide apart. The climb coming at the end of a long day made them all pant and blow. And just as Lucy was wondering whether she could really get to the top without another long rest, suddenly they were at the top. And this is what they saw. They were on a green, open space from which she could look down at the forest spreading as far as one could see in every direction, except right ahead. There, far into the east, was something twinkling and moving. By gum, whispered Peter to Susan, the sea. In the very middle of this open hilltop, was the stone table. It was a great, grim slab of grey stone supported on four upright stones. It looked very old, and it was cut all over with strange lines and figures that may might be the letters of an unknown language. They gave you a curious feeling when you looked at them. The next thing you saw was a pavilion pitched on one side of the open place. A wonderful, a wonderful pavilion it was and especially now when the light of the setting sun fell on it, with sides of what looked like yellow silk and cords of crimson and ten pegs of ivory, high above it on a pole, a banner which wore a red rampant lion fluttering in the breeze, which was blowing in their faces from the far-off sea. While they were looking at this, they heard a sound of music to their right. Turning in that direction, they saw what they had come to see. Aslan stood in the center of a crowd of creatures who had grouped themselves round in the shape of a half-moon. There were tree-women and well-women, dryads and naiads, as they used to be called in our world, who had stringed instruments. It was they who had made the music. There were four great centaurs. The horse part of them was like huge English farm horses, and the man part was like stern but beautiful giants. There, were also, there was also a unicorn, and a bull with the head of a man, and a pelican, and an eagle, and a great dog. Next to Aslan stood two leopards, of whom one carried his crown, and the other his standard. As for Aslan himself, the beavers and the children didn't know what to do or say when they saw him. People who have not been in Narnia sometimes think that a thing cannot be good and terrible at the same time. If the children had ever thought so, they were cured of it now. For when they looked, tried to look at Aslan's face, they just caught a glimpse of the gold mane and the great, royal, solemn, overwhelming eyes. And then they found that they couldn't look at him and went all trembly. Go on, whispered Mr. Beaver. Now, whispered Peter, you first. No, sons of Adam before animals, whispered Mr. Beaver back again. Susan, whispered Peter, what about you? Ladies first. "'No, you're the eldest,' whispered Susan. 
And of course, the longer they went on doing this, the more awkward they felt. Then at last, Peter realized that it was up to him. He drew his sword and raised it to the salute, hastily saying to the others, Come on, pull yourselves together. He advanced to the, the lion and said, We have come, Aslan. Welcome, Peter, son of Adam, said Aslan. Welcome, Susan and Lucy, daughters of Eve. Welcome, he beaver and she beaver. His voice was deep and rich and somehow took the fidgets out of them. They now felt glad and quiet, and it didn't seem awkward to them to stand and say nothing. But where is the fourth? asked Aslan. He was he has tried to betray them and join the white witch hole, Aslan said Mr. Beaver. And then something made Peter add. It was partly my fault, Aslan. I was angry with him. I think that helped him go to go wrong. And Aslan said something either to excuse Peter or to blame him, but Aslan said nothing either to excuse or blame Peter, but merely stood there looking at him with his great, unchanging eyes. And it seemed to all of them that there was nothing to be said. Please, Aslan, said Lucy, can anything be done to save Edmund? All shall be done, said Aslan, but it may be harder than you think. And then he was silent again for some time. Up to that moment, Lucy had been thinking how royal and strong and peaceful his face looked. Now it suddenly came into her head that he looked sad as well. But the next minute, that expression was quite gone. The lion shook his mane and clapped his paws together. Terrible paws, thought Lucy, if he didn't know how to velvet them. And he said, Meanwhile, let the feast be prepared. Ladies, take these daughters of Eve to the pavilion and minister to them. When the girls had gone, Aslan laid his paw, and though it was velveted, it was very heavy, on Peter's shoulder and said, Come, son of Adam, and I will show you a far-off sight of the castle where you are to be king. Peter, with his sword still drawn in his hand, went with the lion to the eastern edge of the hilltop. There a beautiful sight met their eyes. The sun was setting behind their backs. That meant that the whole country below them lay in the evening light. Forest and hills and valleys and winding like the like a silver snake the lower part of the great river. Beyond all this, miles away was the sea. Beyond the sea was the sky full of clouds, which were just turning rose color with the reflection of the sunset. But just where the land of Narnia met the sea... In fact, at the mouth of the great river, there was something on a little hill shining. It was shining because it was a castle, and of course the sunlight was reflected from all those windows which looked towards Peter and the sunset. But to Peter it looked like a great star resting on the seashore. That, O oh man, said Aslan, is Care Paravel of the Four Thrones, and one of which you must sit as kink. I show it to you because you are the firstborn, and you will be high king over all the rest. Once more, Peter said nothing, for at that moment, a strange noise woke the silence suddenly. It was like a bugle, but richer. It's your sister's horn, said Aslan to Peter in a low voice, so low that it was almost a purr. If it is not disrespectful to think of a lion purring, that is. For a moment, Peter didn't understand. Then when he saw all the other creatures start forward and heard Aslan say with a wave of his paw, Back, let the prince win his spurs. He did understand and set off running as hard as he could to the pavilion. And there he saw a dreadful sight. 
The naiads and dryads were scattering in every direction. Lucy was running towards him as fast as her short legs would carry her, and her face was as white as paper. Then he saw Susan make a dash for a tree and swing herself up, followed by a huge gray beast. At first Peter thought it was a, a bear. Then he saw that it looked like an Alastian, though it was far too big to be a dog. Then he realized that it was a wolf. A wolf standing on its hind legs with its front paws against the tree trunk, snapping and snarling. All the hair on its back stood up on end. Susan had not been able to get higher than the second big branch. One of her legs hung down so that her foot was only an inch or two above the snapping teeth. Peter wondered why she did not get higher or at least take a better grip. Then he realized that she was just going to fa- was just about to faint, and if she fainted, she would fall off. Peter did not feel very brave, and indeed he felt he was going to be sick. But that made di- no difference to what he had to do. He rushed straight up to the monster and aimed a slash of his sword at its side. That stroke never reached the wolf. Quick as lightning, it had turned around, its eyes flaming, and its mouth wide open in a howl of anger. If it had not been so angry that it simply had to howl, it would have got him by the throat at once. As it was, though all this happened too quickly for Peter to really think about it, he had just time to duck down and plunge his sword as hard as he could between the brute's forelegs into its heart. Then came a horrible, confused moment like something in a nightmare. He was tugging and pulling, and the wolf seemed neither alive nor dead, and its bared teeth knocked against his forehead, and everything was blood and heat and hair. A moment later, he found that the monster lay dead, and he had drawn his sword out of it and was straightening his back and rubbing the sweat off of his face and out of his eyes. He felt tired all over. Then, after a bit, Susan came down. She and Peter felt pretty shaky when they met, and I won't say there wasn't kissing and crying on both sides. But in Narnia, no one thinks any the worse of you for that. Quick, quick, shouted the voice of Aslan. Centaur's eagles, I see another wolf in the thicket. There behind you. He has just darted away. After him, all of you. He will be going to his mistress. Now is your chance to find the witch and rescue the fourth son of Adam. Instantly, with the thunder of hooves and beating of wings, a dozen or so of the swiftest creatures disappeared into the gathering darkness. Peter, still out of breath, turned and saw Aslan close at hand. You have forgotten to clean your sword, Aslan said. That was true. Peter blushed when he looked at the bright blade and saw that it was smeared with the wolf's hair and blood. He stooped down and wiped it clean in the grass and then wiped it quite dry on his coat. Hand it to me and kneel, son of Adam, said Aslan. And when Peter had done so, he struck him with the flat of the blade and said, Rise, Sir Peter, wolf's bane. Whatever happens, never forget to wipe your sword.